readings this evening. Uh, the first is in Revelation. It's on page 1234 of the Bibles in front of you. Um, it's Revelation chapter 2, beginning at verse 12, on page 1234. Beginning at verse 12. To the angel of the church in Pergamum write, These are the words of him who has the sharp double-edged sword. I know where you live, where Satan has his throne. Yet you remain true to my name. You did not renounce your faith in me, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was put to death in your city where Satan lives. Nevertheless, I have a few things against you. You have people there who are holding to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin by eating food sacrificed to idols and by committing sexual immorality. Likewise, you also have those who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans, Repent, therefore, otherwise I will soon come to you and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give some of the hidden manna. I will also give him a white stone with a new name written on it, known only to him who receives it. The second reading is from Galatians chapter 1, which is on page 1168. Galatians chapter 1, verses 6 to 8. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting the one who called you by the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel, which is really no gospel at all. Evidently, some people are throwing you into confusion and are trying to pervert the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach a gospel other than the one we preach to you, let him be eternally condemned. And the third reading is, if you turn over the page, um, Galatians chapter 4, beginning at verse 8. Formerly, when you did not know God, you were slaves to those who by nature are not gods. But now that you know God, or rather are known by God, how is it that you are turning back to those weak and miserable principles? Do you wish to be enslaved by them all over again? You are observing special days and months and seasons and years. I fear for you that somehow I have wasted my efforts on you. This is the word of the Lord. It would encourage me hugely if you would turn to Revelation chapter 2. Um, as we go through this together. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your word, which is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. Lord, as Tim said at the beginning, you know where each one of us is this evening. You know where we are with you. You know the kind of things going on in our life. And I pray, Father, that every single one of us here in church as we leave, would have a sense that you have spoken to us personally and that we know what we need to do about it. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. 
Well, as Tim said, we're coming back to our study of the uh, book of Revelation. And in particular, we're going to be looking at the seven churches in the next bit. And then in the new year, uh, we're going further on into Revelation. And uh, all these seven churches were situated in what was called Asia, which is actually modern-day Turkey. And uh, Leon Morris, who wrote this commentary, and I do recommend you buy a commentary. Uh, this one is in the Tyndale New Testament series, Revelation by Leon Morris. It will help you particularly with a book like Revelation, which got all kinds of symbolism in it. And I certainly had to do quite a lot of work with commentaries to understand some of the stuff here. So you will not waste your money if you get a book like this, Revelation by Leon Morris. Uh, Morris uh, points out that each of the seven messages to the seven churches has a kind of pattern. There's first of all a greeting then a title of the risen Christ, usually from the description of him in chapter 1. Then there's a section on what is good. There's one church which has nothing good in it. That's Laodicea. Uh, then there is a, a criticism or a challenge from Jesus. Two of the churches don't have that, Smyrna and Philadelphia. They were doing so well. Then there's a warning and an exhortation and a promise. And... Um, what I've just been saying about the commentary is really important. If you will remember, we're doing, perhaps those of you who are new, we've got this three-year intentional discipleship program, which we're coming to the end of at the end of January. In that time, if you've been here with us through that time, we will have gone through the major doctrines of the Bible and some of the major books of the Bible. And if you want to know more, do have a look at the three-year program over there. But in that, we suggest that you build up a Christian library either digitally or with paper. And um, it's really important. It's an investment that will last you a lifetime. So do think about that. We've got a list of recommended books, which are kind of starter, you know, the basics to have in your library to go on from. Um, but the point about these churches is they're quite a mixed bag, as I've already hinted. And um, John Piper, who also wrote about this, said this. When Jesus warns the churches... He said they are merciful warnings to wake the churches up. There is no perfect church, but these, some of these churches are evidently so badly mixed that their very existence is threatened. And it's quite a salutary thing that today not one of those seven churches still exists, not one of them. And um, let's then, with that in mind, let's look at Pergamum. Now, what about Pergamum, the place? Well, it was important for a number of things. First of all, it was an administrative center. It was built on a high hill about 15 ma miles inland in central Turkey. Uh, in about uh, 133 years before Christ, it became capital of the Roman province of Asia. It was a center of culture. It had a library of some 200,000 parchment scrolls. Absolutely incredible. And indeed, we get our word parchment from the word pergamon. The library was second only to the great library that was in Alexandria in Egypt. So it was an administrative center, a cultural center, but thirdly, it was a religious center. It had all kinds of heathen religions there, but most importantly there, there was a religious center for Greek worship. People from all over came because they thought they'd be healed at the shrine of the Greek god Asclepius. It was known as the lords of the ancient world. And beside that, 
And above all, it was a center for Caesar worship. It was the principal center of the imperial cult in this part of the world. And people were required in those days, on pain of death, to call Caesar Lord. And as another commentator has says, to a Christian, nothing could be more satanic than to call somebody else Lord, because Jesus Christ alone is Lord. Um, So, to quote Michael Wilcock, all this paraphernalia of an alternative society uh, catering for mind, body, and spirit is added to the overt demands of the Roman state. In brief, he says, Satan is working here through the pressures of non-Christian society. And I think we can all uh, relate to that, can't we? If you think about our own society today, with all the different kinds of religions that there are, all the different kinds of spirituality, and all that expression of mind, body, and spirit, Satan is very much at work. So that is the place of Pergamon. What is the message that Jesus brings? Well, here in verse 12, he's described as him who has the sharp double-edged sword. That's a title also given to Jesus in chapter 1, verse 16. And when I first read those words, I thought of the words in Hebrews 4:12, which says that the word of God is alive and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. See, the word of God is dynamic. Every time we read it, it should have that kind of effect on us, as if we're sort of saying, Lord, how did you know that that's what I needed to hear at this very moment? Or maybe that's what I didn't want to hear at this very moment. And in Ephesians 6, Paul describes um, the word of God as the sword of the spirit. But in addition in scripture, the sword symbolizes judgment. As we'll see later, Jesus is going to threaten to wage war in judgment against the unrepentant false teachers who are corrupting his church. Because his church, and I mean by that his church universal worldwide, is very precious to Jesus. And in a city as devoted to the Romans as Pergamon was, whose proconsul had the power to put people to death, here is a reminder that there is one whose power is greater than that of any earthly governor. That's the one we worship tonight. And it is indeed no different for us. Because the one who speaks to us as he spoke to Pergamon is the one who wields the sword of life and death and whose words can cut through to our hearts like a double-edged sword. So we do well to pay careful attention to what he's saying. And in this passage, we have two commendations, two criticisms and then a promise what are the commendations look at verse 13 (coughs) jesus says to them i know where you live where satan has his throne yet you remain true to my name you did not renounce your faith in me even in the days of antipas my faithful witness who was put to death in your city where satan lives Jesus starts with his knowledge of their situation. I know where you live. And the Greek word translated live has a sense of permanence about it. This is where they had to stay despite the pressures that they were under. 
How does Jesus describe it? Well, in verse 13, as we've just heard, it's the place where Satan has his throne, where Satan lives. In other words, the power of Satan is very great in this city. He has his throne there. He apparently reigns. He's around all the time. Now, I wonder what Jesus would say to you and me this evening. He might say something like this. I know that office you work in. I know what the prevailing culture in your company is. I know the temptations that are put across your path at work. Now, we will all have temptations at work, whatever our work is, some more obvious than others. Like the businessman I know, who, when doing business abroad, was expected as part of receiving hospitality to use the services of a prostitute provided by the people he was doing business with. Being a devout Christian, he totally refused, despite the fact it could have jeopardized the deal. That is the very real temptation that people face today. And you may well know something like that from your place of work. Or maybe Jesus says to us, I know what your family and your friends are like. I know the pressure they put on you to be less fanatical, as they describe you, in your service of Christ, and to visit them instead of coming to church on Sundays. Or maybe he says, I know what your relationship is like with your boyfriend or girlfriend. I know how you struggle to be pure. The temptations Satan puts across our path are totally varied, but brilliantly geared to affect us individually where we are most vulnerable. Maybe for us it's mainly the general struggle of living in a country which is so secular that even to say you've been to church is considered a cause of laughter or mockery. About a month ago, Charles and I were speaking at a church weekend, and we heard there a, a wonderful girl who was quite a new Christian. She was a young mum with a baby, and one day she was sitting in her garden. She lives in Morton in Marsh, a lovely part of the world in the Cotswolds, and she just had this very clear sense. She hadn't been to church for years. She had this very clear sense that she was to go to church the next day. Now, it was a Saturday. That evening, she was in the pub with her husband and a few friends. And she said, oh, I'm going to go to church tomorrow. And she said the mockery and the laughter that that one sentence caused was amazing. But she went to church the next day. And after a while, she became a Christian. She's a most inspiring Christian to talk to. She actually doesn't care what people think about her. And she's praying very hard for her husband to become a Christian too. But um, just to see her sitting in the pub on a Saturday evening, just casually saying, I'm going to church, and the response that she had, I'm sure all of you know exactly what it's like. So Jesus knows all about the situation of the Christians at Pergamum, and he commends them for two things. Look again at verse 13. First of all, they remained true to his name, despite all the pressures that Satan was throwing at them. They did not give in to temptation. Secondly, they did not renounce their faith in Christ, despite the possibility of terrible persecution. Even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was put to death in your city. Now, we don't know a great deal about Antipas, but he is known as the first martyr of Asia, who, according to legend, wait for this, was slowly roasted to death in a bronze kettle, in a bronze 
huge bronze pan in the time of the emperor Domitian, who was one of the most um, sadistic of all the Roman emperors. And note that Antipas is given, the, is given the same title, faithful witness, as Jesus is in chapter 1, verse 5. What a temptation it must have been for those people in Pergamum when they saw what happened to Antipas to give way to fear, to renounce the name of Christ in favor of the emperor. But they did not. Our brothers and sisters in Christ are being martyred today. The Open Doors Doors charity, which serves persecuted Christians worldwide, states on its website that each month an average of 322 Christians in the world are killed for their faith. 241 churches and Christian properties are destroyed. 722 forms of violence are committed against Christians. Violence such as beatings, abductions, and forced marriages. And no doubt that's simply what is recorded as far as open doors is concerned. No doubt there's very much more than that. Nothing that happens here can match that, certainly not at the moment. But how do you and I stand up to the attacks we do receive? Would Jesus say that you and I remain true to his name? And maybe the physical persecution is getting closer with the terrible events in Paris still so fresh in our minds. Some of the things the media have been saying is that instead of the the, um, ISIS working over there as it is, they are bringing um, their attacks here. And we see in the perpetrators of those atrocities in Paris, we see there a total clash of worldviews, a totally different view of who God is, and what he requires of us. It's an incredibly cruel view. It is satanic, actually, in its uh, view. It's the exact opposite of the God, the one true God. Jesus then moves on to speak about two criticisms he has of the church. In addition, from these problems which we've just been looking at from outside, there are internal issues, false teaching, the heresy in the camp, that the title that we've given to today's sermon. Look at verse 14. Nevertheless, says Jesus, I have a few things against you. You have people there who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin by eating food sacrificed to idols and by committing sexual immorality. Likewise, you also have those who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. You have people who hold the teaching of Balaam. Now, Balaam is a bit of a mysterious Old Testament character, but you can read about him in Numbers. He had led God's people into sin. The Israelite men began to indulge in sexual immorality with Moabite women who seduced them into worshipping their gods, in particular the fertility god, Baal of Peor. And you can read about that in Numbers 25. Balaam thus down the years became a model of false teachers who would lead people into corruption and sin. Eating food sacrificed to idols and sexual immorality usually accompanied idol worship. So some in Pergamum, some in the church, were guilty of syncretism, pick and mix religion, a bit of Christianity here, a bit of paganism there. Compromise with worshiping 
worshipping of God alone. And then Jesus goes on, you have those who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Now again, little is known about them. We, we read about them in the church at Ephesus in chapter 2, verse 6. And to quote the NIV study Bible, these people taught that spiritual liberty gave them leeway to practice idolatry and immorality. So they were similar to the teaching, it was similar to the teaching of Balaam, and yet it was distinct. And John Piper says about this, some in the church were promoting this, sexual immorality, uh, encouraging of idolatry, even while others were laying down their lives for the gospel. And Leon Morris in his commentary has said, this is not the enemy from outside openly seeking to destroy the faith. The false teachers claimed, and here he quotes another person, the false teachers claimed not that they were destroying Christianity, but they were presenting an improved and modernized version of it. And Morris adds, this is the insidious fifth column, destroying from within. How familiar all that seems to us today in view of the heresies that have crept into the church. The cry is to modernize, to get with the culture, to get with the program, to leave all that stuff behind. Some of the stuff the Bible teaches, uh, they would say, you know, it's, it's old-fashioned. You've got to look at where the culture has moved. Now, basically, this all comes down to whether or not you submit to the Bible as your final authority in all matters of faith and behavior, whether or not you like what it says, and I don't imagine anyone here likes the idea that there is a place called hell, whether or not it aligns with the prevailing culture. And actually, the fact is, Christianity has never gone along with the prevailing culture. It's not new, all this stuff that we're hearing today. It's not new. Christ has always called us to be counter-cultural. And heresy in the church was not new. Many of the old, new, sorry, the New Testament letters teach about how to deal with false prophets from within the church. That's why we had that reading from Galatians. I hope you picked up how distressed Paul was to discover that the Christians were in danger of going away from their salvation because false teachers had come in, in that case, wanting them to be circumcised. These false teachers were called Judaizers, and they were saying, it's not enough to have faith in Christ for salvation. You need to be circumcised as well. You need to carry out the requirements of the law. So they were preaching that salvation is by faith and by works, by faith and circumcision. And if you remember in Galatians 1, Paul describes this as a different gospel, which is no gospel at all. Christ criticizes the church for tolerating such compromise. They're all called to repent, but his severest words are reserved for the heretics. Christ says he will fight against them with the sword of my mouth unless they repent. You see, the alternative to repentance is to have Christ, whose power is supreme, way above that of any emperor or earthly authority, Christ to fight against them. What a terrible thought. And as it says in Hebrews 10, 31, it is a dreadful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And you know, as I look 
at all that's going on, as I look at the evil of ISIS and so on, I'm sure you, like me, must tremble at what awaits them, the judgment of God that awaits people who, who teach others to get into this kind of place, to do these kind of barbaric things. But let's look at ourselves. What do you tolerate? What do we tolerate as a church? Well, I'm going to look, first of all, at an example that maybe is much more secret. Pornography. In one of the papers yesterday, there was an interview with five different men about pornography. Nearly all of them said it was a good thing. Yet, it, is totally, it totally goes against God's wonderful gift of sex and how we are to use it. Totally. And I know of marriages severely damaged by this evil. Charles and I have found ourselves talking to people whose marriages are under real strain because of pornography. And it's everywhere. That's one thing that we must not tolerate. But then something else. Take gossip. It's often thought of as what um, a writer, Jerry Bridges, has called respectable, a respectable sin. But listen to God's words about slander and gossip in Ephesians 4:29 God through Paul says this do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs that it may benefit those who listen and do not grieve the holy spirit of god with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption get rid of all bitterness rage and anger brawling and slander along with every form of malice be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ God forgave you. Very strong stuff to hear that slander and gossip grieves the Holy Spirit. We need to pay close attention to that. Do we tolerate it? Do we tolerate it here at St. Michael's? What if somebody starts being negative and critical? Do we just say, well, that's so and so, that's the way he or she always is? Or do we say, hang on a minute? Charles hasn't said this publicly for a long time, but he used to say, the answer is, we don't have that kind of talk right here. So can I pass that on to you? If somebody starts being critical or negative, you say to them, actually, we don't have that kind of talk right here. Finally, the promise for the overcomer. It's a huge encouragement to us to persevere and keep going. And Jesus promises two things. First of all, some of the hidden manna, like the miraculous food that God provided for the Israelites in the desert, it is celestial food not available to the word, to the world. It is the food that will be there for us in heaven at the great banquet with the Lamb, and it contrasts greatly to the food offered to idols, which the heretics were eating. Then there is a white stone with a new name written on it. Now, the meaning of the white stone is very obscure. One commentator said there are seven different interpretations of this. Take your pick. I like to see it. One interpretation is it's a ticket of admission, the ticket we need to get into heaven, which, of course, is faith in Christ. Only he can secure our entry there. And there's the new name. In the ancient world, the name represents the character of the person, Sometimes that happens today. Sometimes people choose maybe a Bible name because of what it means. But usually today, people don't think in those terms. 
But in antiquity, they certainly did. And the Christian is a new creation. Each Christian is a new man or new women, woman. And Christ gives us a new name. And there is the fact here that that new name is known only to the one who receives it. And as Morris says, it meant, it meant that God has given the overcomer a new name, which no one knows except himself. And Morris goes on, a little secret between him and her and God. Well, I don't know what my new name is, but I'm really looking forward to finding out what it is. What a wonderful promise all that is for the overcomer. God is encouraging the people at Pergamon to leave stuff behind, to repent of what they've been tolerating, and to look ahead to the promise for the overcomer. What is it that you have to overcome in your daily life as you try to follow Christ? Has he spoken to you about something today, this evening? There will be something for all of us, and if you're like me, there's quite a long list of things that I know need to be put right. And you see, you will sense Jesus speaking to you about it on a daily basis. And what I find is he tends to home in on one thing, and over and over again, that one thing crosses your path, maybe through a comment from someone else. Just yesterday, I was told by my daughter about a comment my grandson had made. He's only two and a half. And he repeated to his mother something that I had done in the car with him there. And I was thinking, he's two and a half. He doesn't hear what I'm saying to Charles, but he jolly well did. <laughs> and I knew that Jesus was rebuking me through my grandson. It will come. Jesus will, will rebuke us. But he is by our side. He knows the pressure we're under. As we heard at the beginning, he knows where we live. He knows what we're going to face this week. He knows what you're going to have when you go into the office tomorrow. He knows, but he is the one who helps us, as we hear in Romans 8, to be more than conquerors. Let's listen to him and obey, and then hear his words of commendation to us too. Would you please stand? <clears throat> 